Over the last few years, there have been some words that um, just keep floating around in my head, and I can't get away from them. It started when I wrote a book, and sometimes after you do that, you move on to the next thing, and you're on to the next task or the next thoughts or the next big idea. But there have just been some ideas that I can't get out of my head, and I can't stop thinking about them. And it came from the passage in Mark 34. It's such a common passage, having grown up in church, having been going to Bible school, married a pastor, you know, all that stuff, been immersed in church my whole life. I've heard those words in Mark 34 so many times, but I just can't get past them. It's where Jesus is talking to a crowd, and he says he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he said, if anyone would come after me. He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I have heard a hundred sermons on that passage. I've taught that passage. Many of you could probably exegete it up one side and down the other and leave us all in the dust. But that day, Jesus did something that was pretty unusual What wasn't unusual was that there was a crowd around him everywhere Jesus went. There was a crowd. I mean, if we were in downtown Waco and we heard that there was somebody who raised the dead and and took bits of, you know, um, fish and bread and fed thousands of people, and, and if you got near him, you might get your hearing back, and if you were blind and you stood next to him, he might touch you and you might get your sight back, and if you were a leper, he might heal you. And, and I mean, if, if that were the kind of person that we heard that was walking in downtown Waco, I guarantee you most of us at some point or the other would be a part of that crowd who was following him, hoping that maybe some of whatever it was he had or whatever it was he did might touch us and might impact our lives, that the miracles we were longing for might be realized if we could just get close to him. So there was always a crowd. That's not the big deal. The big deal is that day, Jesus said there was a crowd, and then there were also some that he called disciples. And it's like he seemed to to draw a line in the sand that day and say, okay, those of you in the crowd, you're all here. You're all waiting to see if I'll do something for you. If if anything that I can do might rub off on you, you're here in this crowd, and you're, you're coming after me. But if you really want to come after me, if you want to be like this other group over here, the disciples, well, then there's three things that you're going to have to do if you want to move from being part of the crowd, those who follow me for what I can do for them, and this group over here who are mine. And he wasn't ambiguous about it. He wasn't. Um, He didn't put it in some mysterious language that didn't make any sense. He just flat out laid it out there. There are three things that will take you from being part of the crowd into being my disciple. And he said there, you have to learn how to deny yourself. You must take up your cross, and you must follow me. Now, those words, because I've heard them so many times, I asked God if he would give me some other words, a different kind of vernacular that would make a little more sense to me, put it in a fresher way, for me to grab onto those concepts. And what he gave to me that I've been meditating on for the last few years is Jesus said to me, Kay, if you want to move from the crowd, those looky-loos, those who just hang around because they need something and want something from me, and those who really want to be mine, those who want to call themselves my disciples, it says, Kay, you're going to learn 
how to become dangerously surrendered, seriously disturbed, and let me gloriously ruin you. And so that's what I've been thinking about for the past couple of years. And before you check out and decide, okay, been there, done that, heard all of these concepts before, just hang in there with me for a little bit, and let's just see if there isn't something fresh that God has to say to us. Because many times without realizing, you can be a believer in Jesus Christ. You can have been a faithful follower of his like I have since I was a tiny little girl and still mostly hang out in the crowd. Still not really be, have crossed that line and moved over into that category in which you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. So let's look at those three things that Jesus said. These these are the distinguishing marks of those who are really mine. He started out by saying, you're going to have to deny yourself. And right there, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. I don't want to deny myself ever. If I want that cupcake, I want it, and I want it now. I want everything to go my way, don't you? I mean, the truth is, if we could peel off these wonderful facades of nicely shaved and showered and perfumed bodies, we would see that inside of each of us is a perennial three-year-old who wants everything his or her own way, and who is madly in love with himself or herself. And in fact, the two things that I think that stand in the way, at least for me, of really being a dangerously surrendered follower of Jesus Christ are two things. One is control, and one is fear. And when it comes to this control thing, I am the queen in the kingdom of K. And you are the queen in the kingdom of you, or the king in the kingdom of you. And we rule there as not so benign despots. We are desperately seeking every day for our own comfort. I want all of life to be arranged to fit me. I want when I come home every night for my husband to be sympathetic and empathetic to my day. I want him to listen in great detail as I go through every single moment of my day. I don't want his eyes to ever glaze over once. I want him to pay complete attention to me. I'm not as interested in listening to all the details of his day, but I certainly want him to listen to mine. I want that my children to appreciate me and think I'm just the best mom in the whole world. I want every stoplight when I drive up to it, I want it to turn green. I want there to be a parking place exactly in the front of the store when I get there. And I get a little miffed if I have to drive around a little bit trying to find a parking place. I get a little upset if things don't go my way. And the fact is, you do too. We are desperately in love with ourselves, and we don't want anybody, including God, telling us what to do. Thank you very much. I'll figure that out for myself. Thank you. I'll decide, and if I want to do that, I will. There is just this backbone of steel in all of us when it comes to saying no to ourselves and saying yes to God. And that's all surrender is. Surrender is just simply saying yes to God. It's saying no to me in the way that I want to do things and no to the control that I want over my own life all the time and that my life suit me and fit my comfort and instead of saying yes to God. That's a tough one. Like I said, I'm in trouble there a thousand times a day. The other thing that catches us and keeps us from being a fully surrendered disciple of Jesus Christ is fear. And this one is a little more insidious because I think most of us would admit that we don't like you know, anybody telling us what to do. I mean, that's not really hard. Most of us have a little bit of a rebellious streak in us at one point or another. But when we talk about being afraid, that's a little harder to admit. And I don't know where we got the idea that God is really out to get us. 
that if we really, truly surrender, if we say to him, God, everything I have is yours, all that I am, all that I am not, all that I will never be, all that I would ever hope to be, God, everything I am is yours, and I will follow you. Where did we get the idea that God is sitting up in heaven going, this is the moment I have been waiting for. You just wait. Tomorrow I'm sending you to outer Slavovia. You know that diagnosis you never wanted to get? Guess what? Tomorrow you're getting it. You know those kids that you've been guarding and taking care of? They're going off the deep end. You just wait. You just wait. It is such character assassination of our God to think that when we fully surrender to him, that his response us, that when we have said to him, God, I'm yours, that his response to us is to yank the rug out from underneath us in such a way as to destroy us. Where did we get that idea? But because most of us have that idea, we tend to take little parts of our heart, parts of ourself, or people that we really love, or plans that we are really involved in and really care about, and we kind of wall them off in our hearts. And we'll say things like, at least I did, especially as a young mom, lying in my bed late at night when the house is quiet, everything's still, and I'm beginning to do business with God. And I would say things like, God, I love you so much. Wherever you lead, I'll go. Wherever you lead, I'll go. But don't you ever touch my kids. God, I love you so much. I am passionately in love with you. I'm so grateful for you. I, will, I, I say yes, I say yes. Don't you touch Rick. Don't let anything happen to my husband. And we start making these deals with God that say, I will follow you. I will be yours. I will say yes to you. But don't let this happen. Don't touch this person I love. Don't touch this dream. Don't touch this goal that I have. Don't ever let this happen to me. Because, God, if any of those things come to pass, all bets are off. That's not what it means to be a fully surrendered disciple of Jesus Christ. A fully surrendered disciple of Christ is willing to turn over the keys of the kingdom of ourselves to him. And a fully surrendered disciple of Christ is willing to say yes to him and make what oftentimes feel to us to be the most dangerous decisions that we have ever had to make. Believing that while he is not safe, he is good. And he isn't safe. He isn't He can take, he does have the power to turn our worlds upside down. And we love it when it has to do with a miracle that benefits us. When we need a miracle, we need somebody healed. We need a situation desperately to change. And we ask for the power of God to be applied in that situation. And it is, we love it. But when that same powerful God who has that ability to upend the earth, if he will, upends our lives in a way that we don't understand or like, We're not so pleased that he's all-powerful. That's why there has to be a settled assurance in your heart that he is good. He's good. He is good. And he can be trusted. And so I can afford to surrender to this dangerous, not safe, but good God. A few years ago, Some of you heard this in my workshop yesterday. God asked me to make one of the most dangerous surrenders I had ever made in my life. 
I just read a magazine article about AIDS in Africa, not caring about AIDS in Africa. But by the end of reading that article on AIDS in Africa, God had placed in front of my path a decision of whether I would decide, choose willingly to jump into becoming an advocate for a disease and people I didn't know, didn't care about, or stay in the comfortable life that I had begun to create for myself that was good and had some good things going for it and good plans in serving in his kingdom. I won't go through the whole story, but at the very end of the day, at the end of a long period of wrestling, I had to choose to do what to me felt like jumping off of a precipice, jumping into a life for which I was ill-prepared, ill-equipped, had no idea what to do, didn't have the faintest idea what was next, had no idea what I was even getting into, or just stay with the challenging and good life that I had. Some of you have come to this conference because God wants more than anything for you to make a very dangerous surrender of yourself to him, to stop holding back people that you think you're trying to protect from God. You're holding back your kids or your husband or, or your wife or, or a colleague that you love or a friend or a parent or a relative or a dream or a goal or an agenda, a dearly longed for something, and you've held it over here because you're trying to protect it from God. And he is asking you to dangerously surrender it to him, to if, if he asks it as it appears, walk up to the precipice that if you're saying yes to him, feels like you're jumping into an abyss that you don't know what will happen, you don't know what the implications, you don't know where he will take you, you don't know where he will lead, you don't know what he will ask. But your answer is going to be yes. I try to live by this statement. God, my answer will always be yes. I don't do so well at it sometimes. And sometimes the yes comes through a lot of tears, a lot of surrender. But I want not to be in the crowd. I want to be his disciple. So where is it, as we start this, where is it that God is asking for you to make what appears to you to be a very dangerous yes? And then Jesus raises the ante He doesn't stop there. He goes, and if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross. Oh, great. It's not getting any easier. Because in Jesus' day, nobody took up a cross unless they were going to die on it. I mean, I can just imagine Jesus has this crowd around him, and he's talking to his disciples, and, and he's telling them that they've got to deny themselves. And I wonder out of the corner of his eye if he didn't see somebody carrying a cross on the way to their crucifixion. I wonder if he didn't notice that and know what was ahead for himself and, and, and kind of point to this person over here carrying the cross and look back at the crowd and look back at those who had chosen for him and said, if you want to be mine, you're going to have to take up a cross. See, they didn't spiritualize it. You look in the commentaries, and so many of the commentaries spiritualize this. Oh, yes, taking up the cross. Um, Yes, Jesus was talking about a physical cross, but for us, it could mean something as you live with a grumpy husband, and oh, that's your cross to bear. You live with ill health, and oh, that's your cross to bear. You live with rebellious children. Oh, that's your cross. It's my cross to bear. Baloney. 
In Jesus' day, they didn't have crosses in stained glass. They didn't have crosses that you wore around your necks. They didn't have cross tattoos. A cross existed for one reason and one reason only. It was to die upon. So when Jesus was looking at this group of people who wanted to just be with him because they, they served, he served them and he did something for them. And he says, no, no, no. I mean, you can stay there, but if you want to move over here, you've got to be doing, you have to be willing to get on that cross in the same way that I'm going to get on it for you. Well, man, those stakes are really, really high. Jesus in heaven had it all perfect. He's God. Angels do what he wants. He wants some grapes peeled. He can have the grapes peeled. No problem. Anything Jesus wants, it's done in heaven. But he becomes so disturbed, so broken by my brokenness and by your brokenness that he will not, he cannot stay in heaven one second longer than the Father allows him. He has to come and to be here. He's so disturbed by what has happened to us by his creation, how we are torn and broken and separated from him, how our lives are fractured and we're separated from each other. And he said, Father, I've got to be with them. I have got to do my part to restore the fellowship, the relationship back with us. And so he left heaven to take his cross Now, if I'm going to be like him and I'm going to be taken across, then I have to ask the hard question, what is it that so disturbs me about the world in which I live? What is it that is so broken in my life, in my family, in my community, in my church, in my country, in my world, that I have decided I can't live with it another second? I cannot live and let that situation go unchallenged. I may not be able to solve it. I may not be able to fix it. But I'm willing to die trying. If that's what you ask of me. It's becoming disturbed. It's becoming seriously disturbed. So disturbed that you are willing to pay a price with your life if He asks. Most of us are disturbed, but we are disturbed about the wrong things. We're disturbed about things like the price of gas. Oh, my goodness, the arguments and the discussions that can get going. Oh, my goodness, the arguments that get going over politics. Oh, my goodness, and you name it. We're disturbed about who got kicked off of American Idol or which girl didn't get a rose on The Bachelor or, or, you know, some other such things that are part of our lives. Or, you know, you ride on the airplane and they didn't have chicken cacciatore and you had to have mystery meat instead. And, oh, my, we are so disturbed. Disturbed. Those things don't matter. How about getting disturbed about some of the things that do matter? That billions of people in our world don't know that God loves them. How about getting disturbed about the fact that men and women are dying of HIV AIDS alone and ostracized and rejected? How about getting disturbed about the 143 million orphans who live in our world today who have no home, who have no mother and father? How about getting disturbed about the little children sold in sex trade? How about getting disturbed about the homeless that line and live under the bridges around the places around here? How about getting disturbed about the prostitutes and the pimps and the addicts and the divorces that are ripping our families? How about getting disturbed about things that truly matter. I'm disturbed about HIV, AIDS, and orphans. Where is it that God is calling you? Will you let him get into the soil of your heart and stir it up and twist it around and and dig it up and bring stuff to the surface and so much 
a way that you cannot live your comfortable life one more day without being a part of changing what is so broken in our world. Then Jesus said, you want to move from the crowd to being my disciple? You're going to have to learn what it really means to follow me. And honestly, that one was the hardest one for me at all because it just seems so so innocuous, so bland, so follow me. What, What does that mean? And then I looked at the lives of the disciples and I saw what it had meant for them to follow Christ. They were not the same people. They became different people. They were not the same men that Jesus, that they were when Jesus found them. Three years later, they were different because of following him. So I started to look at my own life. What could that possibly mean? Well, it probably means that the way that I spend my money, the way I spend my time, the way I spend my energy, what's on my dream schedule, what's on my list of agenda for my life, somehow that has to change to reflect the fact that I am following him. The words that I use for is to allow him to gloriously ruin us, to ruin us for normal life. I am a gloriously ruined woman. I am not the same person I was seven years ago. And it causes problems. Even within my family, sometimes people go, who are you? (laughs) What did you do with my mother? Because the things you do aren't the things that my mother used to do. She was a really nice lady, but I'm not sure I know this lady standing in front of me anymore. See, the pursuit of the American dream in and of itself, the pursuit of health, wealth, and happiness will ruin you. It will ruin you. How many pairs of shoes, gals, can we own before it just starts to be a little empty? I love shoes, but how many can you own before it loses just a little bit of the charm? Guys, how many electronic gadgets and gadgets can you amass in your garage and in your car before it's just a little hollow. Before the thrill is gone, the thrill is gone before the package is in the trash, the wrapping. The pursuit of the American dream in and of itself will ruin you. It is ruining our country. But let me tell you something. So will following Jesus Christ to the end. Following him wherever he leads, following him to wherever he takes us will ruin you as well. But if you're going to be ruined, why not be ruined for the kingdom of God, for something that lasts instead of something that is so, so temporary and fragile and false? Well, what does it mean to be ruined? Well, it means it's joining a kingdom that is not of this world meaning that it's a kingdom, not that one that we expect. It's a kingdom that's upside down. You've heard this before. It's, it's not a kingdom for the, necessarily the rich. It's a kingdom for the poor. It's not a kingdom for those that are at the top of the heap, but for those who are at the bottom. It's not a kingdom for those that have it all made. It is a kingdom for those who can't ever do it right. It is a kingdom not for just those who are in the center where all the power and all the authority and all the influence is. It is for those who are on the fringes with no power, no voice, nothing to speak for themselves and no one to speak for them. It is a kingdom for those not on the inside, but for those on the outside. And Jesus illustrates it. He he shows it to us in Luke 14. 
he's talking to his disciples again, and he's telling them the, the kind of kingdom that he's calling them to follow him into. And he says there, when you put on a dinner, don't invite your friends and relatives and rich neighbors, for they will repay you by inviting you back. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the godly, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. He has compassion for the least and the last and the lost. His kingdom is about the least and the last and the lost, and he expects us to be about that as well. Last year, I was in a drug rehab facility in um, Russia, about 100 mostly young men and women, and I couldn't speak to them. They spoke Russian, and we were speaking through an interpreter. And if anybody embodied the least and the last and the lost, it were these drug addicts going through rehab. Most of them track marks up and down their arms. Most of them skeletal and thin because they were also also HIV positive. All of them had gone through their relationships. They had trashed the families and the people who tried to help them. I mean, we're talking broken citizens, broken people. And yet person after person after person stood up in front of us and talked about the fact that they had come to know Jesus Christ. That miracle of miracles He didn't consider them trash. Even though they had trashed their lives, he didn't call them trash. He was giving them a second chance. They had been invited to take a seat at his table, and there they had found acceptance and love and mercy and an ability to start again. On that same trip, I met an orphan girl named Ira. And Ira had been raised in an orphanage and told every single day of her life, Ira, you don't matter. You don't matter. Nobody cares whether you live or die. doesn't matter at all. There's nobody in this world that you are of value to. And so as you can imagine, those kind of messages in the, in the psyche of a child warped her and made her a very, very hard young woman. And she became a fighter. She fought with the guys. She fought with the girls. It didn't matter. She was one tough cookie. And then she sold her body, became a prostitute to pay for her drug habit because she also became an addict. And soon she was on the streets, incorrigible, not even being able to be taken care of in this orphanage. And yet when I met Ira, she knew Jesus Christ. And I said to her, Ira, please tell me your story. She said there were a bunch of us who lived on the street and this young couple named Peter and Masha would come and talk to us and they would say, God loves you. And she said, we said, no way, no way, don't believe it. And day after day, they kept coming saying, God loves you and we love you. And she goes, well, we didn't believe them. Then they started inviting us to their house. Every night, Masha would fix spaghetti. She would cook some noodles and pour some sauce out of a can. And, and they let us sit in their living room when it was cold. And we sat in their living room and we talked and we just hung out together. And she said, you know, after a while, can to believe that if Peter and Masha could love me, then maybe God could love me too. Peter and Masha figuratively and literally set the table for Ira and her friends. And when Ira saw that there was a place at the table for her, there was a place for her in God's kingdom, she chose it. She grasped it as the lifeline that it was. My friends, the best way that I know how to describe for you what it means to be ruined, to live as a follower, to follow him, 
is to say this to you. Colossians 1.15. It says there that Jesus was the visible image of the invisible God. See, the thing is, God is a spirit, and I cannot touch him. And oh, there are so many times I would long to just sit on a couch and talk with my father, to talk with God, to have his hands on my shoulder, to have his eyes look deeply into mine, and to tell me how much I'm loved, how valuable I am. God said that through the Old Testament. He told his people, and through burning bushes, and through seas that parted, and through miracles, God said, I am a God of power. He said, I am a God who cares for the orphan. He said, I am a God who cares for the poor. I am a God who cares for those who are marginalized and are disenfranchised. That's the God I am. But we just didn't get it. And then he sent Jesus. And when Jesus, when God said, I care for the children, and we suddenly saw Jesus picking up a child and drawing that child close and saying, it's better for any of you that a millstone be tied around your neck and you thrown into the sea than you hurt one of these little ones. We got it. God cares about children. And when he said, I care for those on the edges, on the fringes of society, And the woman caught in adultery, instead of picking up a stone and helping everyone else stone her, he spoke to her with dignity and gave her worth and then told her how to live differently. When God said, I am a God who cares for the sick, I am a healer, I care about those who are sick. When Jesus spent a third of his ministry healing the blind, the deaf, the lepers, raising the dead, we got it. He made the invisible God visible. And this is our task. As followers, as fully surrendered, seriously disturbed, and gloriously ruined disciples of Jesus Christ, this is our task and our privilege and our opportunity every single day of our lives. It is to wake up in the morning and say, God, I may not know anything else I'm supposed to do today. In fact, my entire life may be in absolute confusion And this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this part's broken, and this part doesn't make sense to me, and and I don't get this, and and oh God, when will this change, and, and what's around the next corner, and all of those things may be so true and present in your life, but here's what you and I get to do in the middle of that every day. Go into our world and make the invisible God visible. How did Ira know that God loved her? Somebody made him visible. How did those hundred drug addicts know that God loved him? Somebody made him visible. If I were to tell you story after story after story after story of the people that I have met in their brokenness, in their woundedness, in the fact that they are dying alone and rejected by society, the orphans that I have met who are alone, how will they ever know that the invisible God cares for them unless we make him visible with our hands and our feet. So where do you need to go in your steps of becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ? Somewhere in your heart, somewhere in your spiritual walk with him, you have been saying no, either out of control or out of fear. He can be trusted. Let your answer to him be yes. 
you've lived a really pretty comfortable life, and you've got your life arranged the way you want it, and you've got your own family, and you've got your own concerns, and you've got your own struggles and problems that threaten to take you down sometime, and that's what disturbs you. And maybe this morning, Jesus' call to you is, there's more. There's more. I want you to be like me. I want you to be willing to take on pain that is not your own. Jesus' pain that he took on himself was not his. It was ours. And in this world, we are to take on the pain that is not ours. And then be willing, if he asks, to give our lives. He asks that we stop coming to him just because we're in such desperate need of his miraculous touch in our lives. And that we say instead, God, would you ruin me? Would you just flat out ruin me for the way that I've been living so that my time, my money, my agenda, my dreams, my schedule, my plans, that I have room in my life to set the table for other people so that they can know you love them.